0: Welcome everybody to another edition of Are You Not Entertained? Joining me, as always, are my two partners
1: in crime there, Roger Mitchell and Charles Morgan. Rog, come in, where are you? Back at the lake? Uh, I'm at the lake, yes. I didn't jump in last night, but nearly. Um... Revelling in Italy's uh, <laughs> magnificent victory. Yeah, they always get it done. Always get it done. They do. It's uh, It's... it's, it's, it's... It's unfair, is what it is, <laughs> as
0: every Spaniard in the world will be Yeah, demanding yeah, they played
1: extremely well. Where were they hiding that for the rest of the tournament? That's what I want to know. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Uh
1: And also, of course, Charles Morgan.
0: Charles, hi, mate.
2: Hello, hello, boys. Very nice to, to, to hear your dulcet tone. How are you? I'm, uh, I'm, I'm in the middle of Wimbledon excitement. Um, it's uh, watching Federer slowly proceed towards hopefully, I mean, to get to the quarterfinals has been amazing at his age, 39 on one leg. And, um, yeah, it's all it's all very exciting.
0: At your age, Wimbledon excitement normally means you have you think you've seen a womble. But um, <laughs> if if Federer if makes it to the final, it'll be an extraordinary thing. I mean, it's funny to, to read the press. They're all talking about, you know, it, anything from here is gravy. And if he makes it to the quarters, it'll be amazing. If he makes it to the semis, it'll be amazing. But uh, it would be so good to see him in another final, wouldn't it?
2: Do you know what do you know what's been massively exciting though for me I was lucky enough to go on Monday for, on the second Monday and um something that we've all talked about and I suspect we'll talk about during this uh, this chat coming up is to be back at Wimbledon lucky me but to be back at Wimbledon live sport with proper crowds centre court full and lots of noise just, fuck, yeah. It's just a great reminder yeah. of why this live sport matters in person. It's something I ask on the captain's table all the time: is do you prefer watching live or in the pub or on telly? What well, what a reminder! Watching live is the best. Yeah,
0: it's so it's so true. It's so true. Well, t- I mean, talking about the the chat we're about to have, um, Rog, why don't you let people know who we are about to have a chat with?
1: Yeah, we're really lucky this week on the Junk Data Works Big Interview to have Nikiza Bidarian. I've known Nikiza not for a long time, but he's somebody who absolutely fascinates me. Uh, this is a guy who comes from a, a well-to-do family in Persia that had to escape around 1979 and ended up in the United States uh, in a very different uh, changed state of affairs uh, where they were struggling. And, you know, if you can still use that phrase these days, he, he is an example of the American dream. Worked very hard, got a good degree, then went to management consulting. As he would admit, he was driven hugely by the desire to make his mother's life the way it once was in terms of quality. So he left what he called a job that wasn't doing that for him to to move into investment banking. Uh, he did that also in the Middle East um, where he ran into um very various people that were going to change uh, what, what he did and what he did for sport. Uh, he ran into the Fertita brothers who obviously were the owners at the time of UFC. They were talking about casinos and they asked him to come and join them at UFC with Dana White. Nikisa was the CFO and, and I would suggest the main business person in there at the time. It wasn't a particularly florid organization and in, in short terms, he basically polished it up into a four billion dollar property that was bought by Ari Emanuel at Endeavour. And you know, UFC is considered these days to be the poster child of uh, building a sports property from the ground up. Not content there, and most people would be content with that. He has moved into uh, what you would consider the, the most uh, disruptive part of the, the sports sector now. He manages the YouTuber turned boxer, uh, Jake Paul, and he has been experimenting with uh, platforms for Jake and others, particularly Triller. So we're going to have today the ability to speak to somebody who is actually living the theory of how sport is changing, how consumption is changing and how indeed sports stars are now defined. So I think we're extremely lucky chaps.
0: Fantastic. Yeah, no, it's a, it's, a, it's a great thrill, for I think, for all of us to have a chance to talk to Nikisa. So why don't we um, stop talking amongst ourselves and talk to the man himself? What do
1: you say? Perfect. Nikisa Bidarian, welcome to Are You Not Entertained? It's a pleasure to have you. It's
3: a pleasure to be on and, and great to spend time with you all today.
1: Wonderful. At the top of the show, we've given the, the listeners a little bit about your background as a young man. So I think a good place to start, as we always like to on, on this podcast, is is the guest's love for sport. So tell us a little bit about uh, being a young boy that moves to a new country, the United States, with a love for basketball. What was the impact of that sport and how did it, you think, shape your love for the industry?
3: Sure, so the year was 1984, 85, when we moved from Cincinnati, Ohio, to Los Angeles, California. And at that moment in time, it was the heyday of the Showtime Lakers. Yes, it was. And my older brother, Barbad, who my son is named after, was an avid basketball fan already and quickly assimilated to being a Lakers fan. And the one memory that stands out most is the 1985 playoffs, Lakers versus Celtics. I forget how many seconds were left on the clock, but my brother and I were watching my you know, one-and-a-half-year-old, two-year-old sister was, was sleeping in, in one of our two bedrooms. And my mom was on her knees praying. And she was praying <laughs> that the Lakers would win so her sons would be happy. And I'll never forget, Magic Johnson took the pass, um, drove right, hit a hook shot, and the Lakers won the game. And that kind of cemented my... Dedication and devotion to the Los Angeles Lakers from from that day forward.
0: Yeah, the, the timing there is is perfect. You know, Magic's baby hook and that 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 Lakers Celtics rivalry that that was I mean that was really from 1979 when Bird and Magic came into the league. That was really when the golden age of basketball started. Uh, and so I mean, you were right there for the beginning of that, and then obviously through the Jordan years, and and you watched that sport become something really it had no right to become given the, the problems that, uh, that the NBA basketball had had in, in the years preceding that.
3: Absolutely. And I often say, you know, Kobe Bryant's probably my favorite player of the modern era. But to me, Magic Johnson has to be considered the greatest player of all time. The only rookie to ever win MVP of a finals uh, and, a, and win the championship in his rookie year. So while I while I was only one years old when that happened, I, I've watched those highlights many a times and. And credit him as being the ultimate team player.
0: Yeah, it's funny. I, I've told this story before, but but it, it, it's it, that that ability when you watch these great superstars to to do things be, between fathers and sons and daughters. You know, I, I remember when when Jordan was in that that last set of finals against Utah for the for the second three-peat, and my daughter, who at the time would have been seven or eight, um, I sat her down for that final game with the Utah Jazz, and I made her watch it with me. And I said, come on, sit on the couch, you're going to watch this. She's like, oh, dad, I don't want to watch this. I said, one day you will thank me for watching this game. And she sat and watched it. And obviously it was a really exciting game. And uh, I've told Roger and Giles this, but years later, I overheard her talking to friends of hers. And and the, the topic of Michael Jordan came up. And she said, oh, yeah, yeah, I watched his final game with my dad on the couch. And it's just those memories that you make with these things, particularly when great players are involved. I mean, they just span generations. They're extraordinary
3: things. Absolutely.
2: Nicky's, it's it's interesting for me. I'm not a grants very much a, like you a basketball fan, and it's something that's come to me a little bit later as I've uh, sickly through Netflix just recently. But I'm interested on your take on how NBA is is um, colonizing itself beyond beyond the USA, and and your views on how it's going in China and, and in other markets. Is there an inexorable growth of 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 both basketball and through the NBA and other franchises? Do you think this is a sport that hasn't even remotely um, reached its summit?
3: I think it definitely, from the traditional ball and stick sports that are popular in the U.S., has the most potential to continue to grow internationally. I think the league has become more international in its player base over time. You're you're seeing local fanship within each relative region be meaningful and the popularity for the youth uh, is is continuing to to rise and i think given the consumption habits of the youth and the highlight driven nature uh, of their preferences i think basketball fits well for it and of the traditional ball and stick sports including soccer which of course on, on in europe is, is the number one sport it's the most small screen friendly Right. Put combat sports aside. I think basketball is uh, of of take baseball, foot, you know, American football, soccer, hockey, which is extremely fast paced. I think basketball has the attributes to to be the most meaningful. The delta and how far and how big it can go is about putting the top-tier content in the local market, which very few US leagues are able to do. Um, and vice versa. Very, you know, Europe, very few European leagues and other sports are, are able to do outside of their home market. So that that I think will always be a you know a, a limitation of how big basketball can become. But I think it has the best shot for sure of continuing to grow.
1: Nikisa, um very very quickly getting in. Obviously, with basketball to the seismic uh, decision last couple of weeks around the NCAA you'd probably be one of the main guys that would understand the implications of this more than anybody else. Can you tell us a little bit how you see the dominoes falling after the Supreme Court decision?
3: I think, look, I don't know if you saw the announcement today, but since since the decision, the the biggest um, commitment to collegiate players just came out of an MMA gym owner and promoter, Dan Gilbert, uh, from American Top Team, just committed $540,000 to the Miami uh, University football team. And look, they these the collegiate system in the U.S. is unlike any in the world from my perspective, right? In terms of how they start to focus on uh, men and women from middle school, by the time they're in grade nine or 10, if they're, if they're standouts, they're already being recruited. And of course, they get a great education and opportunity and platform. But what's happened as a result of the past 10 to 15 years is these young men and women are creating their own platforms, right, their own interaction with fans, and they're driving just as much value from my perspective um, in terms of turning fans into revenue as much as those great historic collegiate brands uh, have done so in the past, right? Right. Um, Magic Johnson, is, as popular and as big as he was, he didn't have a direct channel to communicate with fans. He needed the Michigan State platform to really gain that notoriety and awareness. So from, from my vantage point and, and working with the likes of the Paul brothers, this is this is an appropriate step to allow them to monetize monetize their name and likeness for the value that they bring to bear while also recognizing that the infrastructure support and kind of overall system that's been set up by NCAA and the teams is valuable as well to them. So um, it, in effect, it's a revenue sharing system that I think will will continue to evolve over time.
0: Is there a danger that um, you lose the purity of college athletic sports? And I put that in inverted commas because we all know that it's it's really big business. But when I, when I moved to America, like you, I was a little older, but, but I... I quickly learned to understand the the affection that, that American sports ha- fans have for collegiate athletics over the pros. You know, I'd only really ever seen the pros um, in, in the UK and in Asia where I'd lived. I hadn't really seen college sports so much apart from the, the NCAA Final Four every year. But, I, but it didn't take me long to realize the special place that college sports has in the hearts of American sports fans because, purely because of that exact fact, it's not all about the commercial once it gets down to the athletes themselves they're playing for love of the game and for the future and not for money do you you think there's a risk that this compromises that
3: i think this this actually helps sustain and maintain that purity to a certain extent as you're seeing you know the nba um, g league has taken steps to recruit high schoolers and give them a path not to go the collegiate route over time, the media company has started yeah. its own basketball league not to go the collegiate route. So if if this evolution didn't happen with the NCAA and allowing players to participate, I think you would have seen more and more um, kind of divergence between top tier players in the most watched sports, which are. NFL and NBA or basketball and football, I should say, connected. than than what you're seeing happening now. So I, I think actually it's it's a positive, and, and yes, it, it will money will become a factor, but money's always been a factor. Any yeah. any you know boy or girl who's made a difference has had their eye on what the long term prosperity of what they were spending their morning, day, uh, and night on uh, has anyway. So I feel it's a positive.
1: Nikisa, uh let's let's um take that theme a little bit and um tell your story uh, around the UFC, which I think most of us uh, would say in 2021 is probably the biggest success story in, in sports, rights, marketing, creating new properties and new IP. Uh, you, run, you run into the Fertitta brothers, uh, I think, in the Middle East. Um, you nearly do a deal with them. It doesn't happen, but they want you anyway. Um, and, you know, I think maybe now it would be hard for people to remember, but the UFC wasn't particularly in great shape. Uh, And you go in and you start, you know, a CFO running it. You know, tell us a little bit about what you thought it could become, what you were trying to achieve. And did it kind of like go beyond even your own uh, vision?
3: Sure. Maybe maybe I'll take a step back to your first question of what kind of drove me into the sports space and then evolve into that, if that makes sense. Perfect. Perfect. You know, I I grew up a big fan of, of two forms of content, music and sports. But life circumstances and kind of know-how and, and mentorship led me to what I'll call the finance world. So while I, wanted, I had a dream of being involved in music, I had a dream of being involved in sports, it was never something I pursued because it wasn't a kind of clear path to success. And my clear path to success was to get into, get into Wall Street, which I was going to do from undergrad I, I diverted and did consulting, which was great, gave me a global perspective working with different people, kind of like my childhood. And then once I did my MBA I, I followed that that route of, of going to Wall Street working with city, uh, going to Dubai with Morgan Stanley and then fortunate enough to to be recruited to join an Abu Dhabi investment fund where my entire focus was real estate hospitality and gaming. nothing to do with sports. still a huge fan uh, still you know watched the MBA, Uh, late, 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 late at night or early in the mornings in the UAE. And what what happened over that time, that same fund invested in EMI, a music publishing company. I had nothing to do with that deal, though I wish I did. And (laughs) that same fund invested in the UFC. Not only did I have nothing to do with that deal, I didn't even know what the UFC was. Totally oblivious to its existence. But I realized that Frank and Lorenzo Fertitta were the owners, respected them from their gaming acumen and to your to your reference yes we pursued a deal for me to join them it didn't happen i joined them in 2011 with the intention of setting up an investment fund focused on media and entertainment and as we were going through that process uh, lorenzo asked if i would be interested in joining the ufc at the time it was an investment and in strategy role it wasn't the cfo role but for me it was exciting because i'd been a consultant i'd been a banker i'd been an investor i hadn't been an operator yeah and now, here was my chance to get involved into sports. I'd been into two fights, to two fights at that point. And the UFC was already on a great path. I mean, to be 100% clear, they divested circa 10% to the UAE at a close to $2 billion valuation. So I certainly wasn't coming into something that had uh, a lot of issues. It was definitely, by that point, I turned the corner and, and was starting to become more part of mainstream culture. I would say what was the difference was the business was still largely event-driven versus being a content uh, distribution platform that had kind of global reach, access, and relevancy, unlike any other U.S.-based entity uh, at the time. And that that's kind of the you know the turning point from from my my view when I came in and started to say, hey, let's look at this business not on an event by event basis, but on a three to five-year Uh, horizon and start to see these unique markets where we have unbelievable talent and as a result followership and fanship like brazil like canada like australia and how do we exploit those to to create a global brand which i think the ufc is truly a a global brand
2: so i'm interested that you spent i know sort of listening to to to, and hearing about your biography you spent some time in sterling Um, yes must have been interesting which I mean, Roger will love that. That's halfway between Edinburgh and Glasgow. Yes, it is. It's so his. he's very much his parish. But do you? Was there a part of living out quite quickly internationally elsewhere? Was that very helpful for you as you look back on your career to understand that term global? Absolutely, it something you can get can be leveled sometimes of people from the US is that they talk about global sport, they talk about China, Asia, but they don't really mean it. Do you think that genuinely that nine months time and then being in Dubai did give you a much better perspective that later on helped you with the UFC and the growth?
3: Yeah, I would say my entire upbringing, you know, going to 11 different schools in five different countries before college helped with that. Going into consulting to your point and working... Um, globally with different clients and teams helped with that. And, you know, then going from New York, which people thought at the time I was um, slightly off kilter to Dubai in 2007, helped with that as well. Because, you know, when I when I joined Dubai and then Abu Dhabi, it was very much a global mandate and not about investing in the region, but looking at Asia, looking at Europe, looking at Africa. And, you know, we had this opportunity where the world was liquidity constraint oil prices were high so the middle east was liquidity rich so there was no shortage of shortage of things that we were able to to kind of explore and see um, and so when joining the ufc absolutely i i felt like i had a grasp of global business and global consumers not not an expert by any means but, but at least i'd been exposed to it and and could start to think about it the right way
2: and did you have a favorite tartan i'm 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 intrigued now this um when you were in Stirling, at the home of William Wallace, I mean, did you get into the ho- because there's nothing more culture, but you know, in terms of sort of the embracing of a culture, Scotland does a lot with tartan and warriors, and even Roger Mitchell as his <laughs> own. Sort of, but did you kind of did it, that must have opened your eyes? I just an international boy who started in the Middle East, been in Canada and America, to end up in Stirling of all places, which got that most beautiful castle. Your eyes must have been, I'm sort of sorry to dwell on it, but it must have shown you another world that was, wow, I really am going to become a global citizen.
3: <laughs> well, I, I, I certainly enjoyed my time in Sterling, although not a lot of sunshine. I always say I spent, <laughs> I spent, I spent my sightseeing and dinners in Edinburgh, and I had my you know, nights out in Glasgow. So that's how I, I split the time. And look, <laughs> just being very open, you know, being in Stirling, there was once where I was asked if I was a NBA player or a basketball player. Um, you know, just because my my skin color was a little darker than most in that city at that point in time of, of the world. So I
2: how think tall, how tall, how tall are you? Not that
3: tall, six one. <laughs>
2: not tall not enough,
0: that tall. Tall enough. But it was <laughs> taller <laughs> than Roger. But but, but Sterling <laughs> had, had
3: not really seen someone of, you know, I guess my color, my background, kind of my uh my accent for a while, I would say when I when I went to that country. And in uh two thousand and two. So it was it was a phenomenal eye-opening experience for sure, a unique culture um with, with Haggis and the like and a great experience. Our client was Bank of Bermuda. So I spent my time between Hamilton Bermuda, which is one of the most pristine, beautiful islands in the world, and Sterling, which Hamilton. has a ton of culture. Ha- ha- ha-
0: and ha- Hamilton <laughs> Academicals,
3: yeah. yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Nikita, let's let's move on to the to the UFC because it it really is it's an extraordinary business that uh, that that has seen some remarkable lows and some remarkable highs. J- just take us through that because um, you know the UFC was was on its knees at one point, and now when you look at it, you see one of uh, as the sale proved one of the most pristine sports properties on the planet.
3: Yes, and I'll say, look when when Lorenzo led. Uh, the acquisition of the UFC and and brought in Gama as his partner. I think he had a vision for it, which played itself out over the next 15 years of his ownership, which was run towards regulation, own and distribute your own content and put in the right team uh, around it. And they, they did that successfully. And over time, I think they realized that it was a sport that translated extremely well on any shore and any culture and started to build out the local kind of local offices. And the biggest advantage that combat sports has in my mind that others others don't, and UFC particularly, is that it could take its premium content to any jurisdiction. You're never going to see the NBA finals or the conference finals outside of the home markets in the U.S., Super Bowl could right take a Super Bowl outside of the US, but I'm not sure the economics of the league ownership allow it. UFC with a single ownership structure and flexibility of schedule with no deemed home base could take a locally relevant premium product, which for them at the time was pay-per-view, to Brazil, to Rio de Janeiro, which we did, to Sao Paulo, which we did, to London, which we did, to Stockholm, which we did, right? to melbourne which we which we did they have and they continue to do so i think it um it really was a differentiator for for the ability of it to become of course relevant and meaningful in the u.s but also part of culture internationally as well
2: nikki's a question i've been dying to ask you and, and you won't know this or care but <laughs> for 12 years I, I i ran sponsorship for hsbc globally and i was very aware of of the growth of of UFC as we all were and and seeing this. And of course, a lot of sponsorship decks from all sorts of sports and elsewhere would come across my deck. And I work for, you know, HSBC is a very, very big blue chip corporation, which is global, but old school and um, very risk averse. And one of the things that I was always very mindful of is MMA, UFC, any kind of pugilism, was that kind of the, 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 the um, risk to brand on something as kind of earthy as pugilism. If you'd been pitching to me then uh, about why this international product that is obviously embracing kids and getting huge new audiences, how would you have answered that? Because it's something I've... I, I couldn't go close to it for various reasons. But having seen the growth and this extraordinary growth of, of, of culture... How would you have answered that?
3: Look, and I think it's it's still a hurdle for every combat sports brand or athlete today, given you know their their profession and performance is is more kind of raw, aggressive, um, and untamed than than other sports. It, I don't think you know it's it's not for every brand. So I don't know if HSBC would have been a, would have been a fit at the time or, or today, given the overall consumer base. I think given it was a long storied financial institution, probably a hard hurdle to come over. But I would say if you have a view of being relevant and getting engagement from key younger demographics and being able to do so like HSBC, which is a global bank that views itself as the world's local global bank, then a sport like the UFC is what's most logical. No different for- yeah,
2: well, it, you'll be amused that, um, so, so your pugilism was 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 sort of frowned upon, but I got a call, and this is a true story, the lads don't know this, I got a call, I don't know, about 2011 or 12 uh, at HSBC at the time in Brazil. They sponsored two major stadium, and I got a call from the CEO of the time, which was never a good sign if I got a <laughs> call from the CEO, but, particularly late at night, saying, since when did we sponsor... Um, MMA and I said, I don't know what you're talking about. We don't, we do golf and do other things. And he said, Well, I'm watching on telly now, <laughs> and there's two people knocking the seven bells of shit out of <laughs> each other, and our brand is all over it. And I went, Oh, God, here we go. I'll give you the my
3: HSBC <laughs> Arena. There,
2: the HSBC Arena. So, in a funny kind of way, we were involved, but I, I tell you, it was one of the worst calls I ever got. But then he admitted to me he actually loved it personally. So, there it was you fun. go. There you go. <laughs> N-
3: N-
1: Nikisa, let's let, let's um, focusing a little bit about what clearly has been one of the major pillars of ufc success which is around personalities and backstory and 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 marketing of individual athletes you know how important uh, maybe it's not true the way you read it but how important was coming up with the reality show ultimate fighter to the creation of of a, a 4 million dollar business
3: sure so ultimate fighter obviously came into existence before my time at the ufc and you know the story has been told a few times by Lorenzo that by that by that point I think they were five and a half six years into the business and they were looking for something that could spark the the brand back to life and take it out of continuing to run at a loss and turn into profitability and so they basically went around Hollywood and pitched this concept of the Ultimate Fighter to you know every media company that that existed and the only one that actually gave them any time and attention was was spike and even the deal with them was we'll pay for it you just give us the airtime. the benefit of what that ended up doing for them was they paid for it and they owned it spike didn't ask for any rights didn't ask for any renewals just agreed to say okay we're starting this new channel we'll we'll go ahead and take that risk and the season was engaging quickly the young male demo was was drawn to it. And I think the, the biggest driver of it all was the, the final finale fight was absolutely entertaining and one of the, the best mat, you know matches in, in UFC history. And as Lorenzo has told the story before he left the arena that night they had a new deal with Spike for future seasons of the Ultimate Fighter. <laughs> and early on early on in its life, the you know the ufc definitely was was driven a lot by the ultimate fighter in identifying talent through that show ultimate fighter took a hiatus for a few years and i think just started its newest seasons on espn about 5 weeks ago but it hadn't been around for a few years uh, but it's, it's you know it's it was such a huge contributor to the roster and helping fans get awareness of some of these athletes and at that point in time 06 07, 08, 09, 10, social media wasn't as prevalent as it is now and these personalities didn't have their own direct marketing channels to fans so ultimate fighter was even more important
1: i'm going to ask something taking us back to where you started talking about the music business uh, and and indeed the, the the show business in general you and I have both worked in the music business and we've probably heard conversations of, of along the lines of, you know, the, the, the head of an organization, whether it's EMI or whether it's Warner Brothers, and they, they, they get into a room and one of them says, look, we have now decided that George Clooney is going to be a megastar. And uh, same in the music business. In your world of USC, was there ever a meeting when you guys get in a room and you said, it's that Irish bloke, he's the one that's going to do it for us?
3: There's weekly meetings that existed at the time that were called matchmaking meetings, which I would say in its infancy were tactical and over time became very strategic in looking at how you continue to build someone who had star potential. You had to have the potential, right? So, same as yeah. the music business, you either have to be able to, to sing well, perform well, dance well, be a great showman some characteristic there and I would I would say in the UFC you need a combination of all of that so you have to be able to fight well you have to be able to present well you have to be able to entertain you need to be engaging and I think Dana and and his team have continued to do a great job of identifying um, those individuals but very much so part of the conversation and debate of who is next what is next how do we sustain of course
0: Okay, so let me ask you about something that, that has been a kind of constant bone of contention on this podcast, between Roger and I particularly, and that is the, the kind of movement into celebrity bouts. Um, and this is obviously something you have a tremendous amount of experience in. So I'm fascinated to get your, your thoughts on this. You know, R- Roger has been absolutely right on this in terms of the popularity, in terms of where this was all heading. And I've been the, the kind of the, the stuffy old Puritan saying this is the biggest nightmare of all for sport, putting celebrities in, into boxing matches and making it all about the, the personality and stuff. Just, just talk to us about the evolution of that, because obviously you're heavily involved with Jake Paul. Um, who was one of the kind of pioneers of this. So if you could just talk around how those ideas came to fruition and how you've kind of carried that to the places now where these fights are the biggest grossing fights pretty much uh, of anything we see uh, anywhere today. Sure. I mean,
3: I, I would say it's been around for, you know, 40 plus years. If you look at Muhammad Ali We're, starting again, to- okay,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: Right, starting to kind of get into that, that realm and if you look at celebrity fights as a concept have existed boxing matches for, for a long time if you look at the ufc bringing in brock lesnar who you know had a collegiate wrestling background as a wwe champion which you know some argue it has some form of sport and then when we made the decision while well, i was there to bring in cm punk didn't have a collegiate wrestling background or any know-how, but had a huge platform awareness and audience, and it was an experiment of seeing, could we bring in this um, popular individual in a connected world and exploit them within the UFC ecosystem? And CM Punk, for for all of his performance capabilities, didn't didn't do well in in MMA on the biggest stage. And so what happened with the Paul brothers, I would say, is It started out as kind of rival YouTube stars calling each other out. In Manchester, there was an exhibition match, which sold extremely well, um, both as a live event and on YouTube. Of course, lots of piracy as well. And then that turned into a professional match between Jake's brother, Logan, and KSI, who's the largest kind of UK influencer. And it was, I got to give credit to Eddie Hearn and Matchroom. And zone who had the foresight to say, you know what, this can actually drive all but eyeballs and drive subscriptions. And at the time, when they put that event on, it did, it did really good in, in LA in terms of live ticket. And I think it was the third most consumed piece of content on the DAZN platform. And that was an eye opener for me because not of the popularity, but how serious I saw these young men taking it, right? It wasn't something where traditional celebrity boxing people were coming in and you know, putting in a couple of weeks of training and and looking like absolute amateurs, um, and that's that's the point where I got introduced to Jake Paul and, and saw our future with him, not as a celebrity boxer, but as a professional boxer who has a celebrity platform.
1: One of the the big big themes, you know, that, that if you're at the center of sports industry, certainly traditional sport, you say how do I how do I take my sport. Uh, and attract new audiences. Uh, Whereas your way of thinking is, why don't we go to where these audiences already live on new platforms, whether that's Twitch, TikTok, Triller, uh, Overtime, and then put on events that maybe are not as traditionally welcomed or or seen as authentic, but I've got the immediate start that they are where the new generations are. I think that is the big question mark conundrum from sport. Do we try and drag the audience to us or do we just go to where they are? How do you see it, Nikiza?
3: I think it's, look, it's a combination of the two in terms of the strategy that we've been pursuing. So it's it's bringing our own audience and then attracting tangential audiences or audiences that will be focused on what we're doing. So one of the things you've you've seen with Jake Of course, his first professional fight was against a fellow YouTuber like his brother did. But his next fight was against a basketball player. And people now will say, oh, that that wasn't a real fight. Actually, more people had the basketball player winning than Jake Paul, but we attracted the entire NBA slash basketball audience that night, right? So we started to introduce them into our ecosystem. And then very strategically, we said the most successful an engaged fan base in combat sports is MMA. How do we take advantage of that? And Jake has s- since then really become against and for MMA at the same time, if that makes sense. In some ways, calling out its biggest stars, being called out by its biggest stars. In other ways, figuring out how to support and be a voice for some of, some of those athletes and that's, that's where we've been able to bring in the digital world, boxing, and MMA all under one roof, right? Usually people think MMA and boxing have a lot of crossover, but they don't. There's very kind of distinct fan bases for 90% of that product. Of course, when Connor fights this weekend, there'll be boxing fans that watch, but he fights twice a year. And if, of course, when um, you know, wilder and fury fight there'll be some m m a fans that watch, but the crossover is actually a lot more limited than people generally um think it is
0: Nick, is, is there a danger because as i as i watched the evolution of these kind of um celebrity fights, particularly going to the Floyd Mayweather fight recently, which I noticed that the coverage of it I wasn't bombarded with coverage now, I don't follow this stuff closely on a day-to-day basis on my Twitter feeds and stuff like that. But I noticed I was still getting bombarded with promotional stuff about these fights coming up. The Floyd Mayweather one, not only did I not get the same kind of intrusion into my Twitter feed about that fight before it, but afterwards, again, I didn't see an awful lot of media coverage of the fight. Is Is there a point where you get to where it seemed like that fight, particularly, was a mismatch. And Mayweather, perhaps, you know, carried uh, his opponent for a while and made sure no one got hurt. And it had that feel of kind of old school wrestling about it. Is there, is there a line that you have to be careful of crossing where these things have to be somewhat authentic, even if the one side of the, of the ring is not an authentic boxer? But the competition has to be authentic because that, after all, is what connects with an audience.
3: Yeah, I'll I'll say a few things on that. I would say first and foremost, an extremely successful event, one that I wasn't involved with, so I don't work with Logan, but extremely successful. I think that the things that had it not being covered, as as you say, to the extent it should have or would have, uh, was number one, it was an exhibition, right? So there was no outcome, there was no decision, there was no winner. Number two, to your point, you were putting the greatest... Boxer of all time, arguably against someone who was zero and one professionally as a boxer, um against him. And I would say number three, just the, the age gap and the size difference, while it might have been intriguing to some, just made you feel like this was more choreographed and than, than authentic. Not saying any of it was. And, and again, extremely successful event. But that that's that's been the distinction of what we've tried to do with, with Logan's brother Jake, is actually make it authentic. The coverage is insane to, to the point where, you know, we were saying last week ESPN did their mid-year MMA awards, and then the headline was two references to weight classes and Jake Paul, right? <laughs> and to me, of course, they're doing that to drive engagement and clicks, but it speaks to the amount of coverage we're getting from traditional sports media because we are creating these events that leads to the imagination of... Who is going to win? So to your point, even though Floyd versus Logan wasn't a real fight, was an exhibition. There were still international offshore bookies that were taking bets. Oh yeah, and I think oh, yeah. you know Floyd was like you know minus eighteen hundred, minus two thousand, minus three thousand. Um, every fight Jake has been, the odds have been fairly even, right? So we've tried to grow his his competition step by step, and also doing so in a way where the the average consumer can can really believe there is an unknown outcome here.
2: Nikita, so, um talking of th- um, forces of nature um which you kind of are. I remember when IMG was taken over by uh by Patrick Whitesell and Ari Emanuel and his uh, and the team there. I was introduced to them both and and I have never there are some people you never forget. Ari Emanuel would definitely be one of a force of nature, uh, just a a typhoon share with us if you can a little bit about the whole uh, process of that of the of the acquisition of, of 4 billion dollars and that happening how on earth did that all start what was the first phone call what were the negotiations like oh, my god i mean that that that's got to be written in a book at some point
3: <laughs> it really started uh, in 2014 when i was in uh, a nightclub in New York and a mutual friend introduced me to a mutual friend who said, I have someone who's very interested in talking to you about buying the UFC. And at that point in time, I, you know, I don't think Lorenzo and Frank had any interest in, in selling the company, but the the party on the other side was uh, one of the most uh, well-known established investment funds in the world. Uh, and when, when they call you, you know, you take it serious. And so that that was an intense three-month process that ended up in a transaction not happening. But as we were concluding that process was the first time, if I recall, Ari approached Lorenzo and said, I want to buy this business. And for for many different factors in that point in history, it didn't happen. Uh, Some of it driven by the price point, some of it driven by Um, the variability of the business at that that point in time. I used to say the the UFC's business was very episodic. Uh, I didn't like to use the word volatile as a CFO, but episodic in our pay-per-view structures. And so the episodes weren't doing as well for a little bit of time there. And it's kind of, we put things on pause. And then it was late 2015, where if you remember foreign direct investment by China was at an all-time high. And they were particularly active on media and entertainment assets. And so we had inbound inquiries from different Chinese investment firms, different Chinese operating companies. And that's when Lorenzo and Frank made the decision to have a more fulsome um, process around exiting the business. And Ari was always um, front and center in those discussions. And I think, you know, one of the one of the most important things in any transaction is that you feel Like you're not just getting great value for what you're selling, but you're also passing on the assets to a a great caretaker of the brand and someone who can hopefully grow it, right? I would say the biggest thing for me is the UFC is more successful financially today than it was in 2016. And that means Lorenzo and Frank and Dana chose the right partner. And that, that process was extremely Um, intense for five to six months. I remember I had my newborn. We left the hospital. I took my wife home and I left to go to a dinner with potential uh, buyers. Right. And to this day, I can't live that down from my wife who said you left us (laughs) for the first week effectively of our child being home. Um, But You know, Ari is a force of nature. I I have nothing but respect and admiration for him. During that period, we probably spoke anywhere from, you know, 15 to 20 times a day. Oh, uh, wow. As early as, I don't know, four in the morning on a day that we didn't talk through four in the morning, right? I remember one combo we were talking about a particular term that we were negotiating back and forth on. And he said, "Okay, let me go do yoga, and I'll call you back in 30 minutes." And uh, he went into yoga. and called me back in 30 minutes, and kind of said, "Here's what we can get to." And I called Lorenzo um, at eight or eight thirty and said, "Here's kind of what we've come up with overnight." So it was it was a a, a unique, fun, intense, inspiring process um, in in many ways. And when when it all came together, there was a signing, which is you know. The picture I think is somewhere on the internet at Frank's office in Las Vegas, and it was an amazing moment, right? These two brothers took a huge risk when, as they say, it was the only time they never that they didn't listen to their father's advice and made the investment anyways.
2: Well, and for me, I'm 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 fascinated too because as Roger had talked a lot about on this podcast over the years, is sports is going through a transformational time because of. All sorts of things, media changes, obviously data, how kids are consuming technology, the whole world is is changing and sport as much as anything. So a question for you, it's a bit unkind, apologies, but in 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 cricket, which is probably not a game you know well, this would be a snorting bouncer, which means it's like a, a speedball it's coming <laughs> right at you. If if there was shock news that on Saturday Thomas Bark stepped down from the IOC. And with that, all of the 180-odd IOC members stepped down. And there was going to be this void in the Olympic Games, the oldest sporting uh, competition in the world, obviously, uh, or recorded anyway. Um, And it was up to you to turn this thing around, to turn this super tank around. What are the kind? I mean, not asking you to do it because that might be quite a long answer. But what are the things that you would look at? Where you look at something like the Olympics, one of the most recognised brand symbols in the world that stands for so much good, and yet seems to be, certainly in my eyes, a little bit behind the the eight ball. What, with with the experience you've learned from building a a, a franchise up from nothing into something explosive, what, what are the things that you would do?
3: That's a that is that is a curveball indeed, and, and one I I, <laughs> I I don't necessarily feel qualified to to, to give much. Oh, you're qualified. You know,
1: you're qualified, Nakiza. Go okay. for it. The
3: deep, deep, you know, deep analysis on. But look, I think it's a heavily cost burden structure that benefits, uh, you know, a, a select few. And that has to change, right? This this model of these, I guess, these beauty contests and then spending billions and billions of dollars of taxpayer money to bring in sports that don't have a large continuous following um, and not really allowing those athletes to be, you know, the recipients of the benefit of that value, I think, is is broken. There has to be more of a partnership-driven model between the cities, the athletes, and the media partners to continue the the success. I look at what they're bringing to. I think Japan is not Japan. Maybe the next. Maybe it is Japan. That breakdancing is now an Olympic sport. Um, you know, they're trying to <laughs> skateboarding is is coming.
2: Well, no, and the breakdancing gives me hope for a medal. So I'm I'm all good. <laughs> but I think they're
3: they're they're trying to figure out how to evolve and be relevant. But I think I think you're right. They need to kind of sit back, unscramble and and restrategize of how do we continue to ensure this longstanding historic monumental uh, sporting uh, event evolves with, with the younger generation because it because it isn't, right? The Gen Z is not talking about the Olympics. It's not their focus.
0: Nikis, so let me let me stay on this this kind of topic, if I can, loosely. Um, obviously you have an investment background from your days at Morgan Stanley and a battler. When you look across the sporting landscape, we've we've had conversations with the guys who are putting on lacrosse leagues and triathlon leagues, and we're going to talk to Sail GP shortly to find out how these, you know, kind of niche sports are really making inroads into into becoming real properties. When, when you look across the sporting landscape with your investment background, do you see any properties in the sporting world that you think are ripe for uh, shaking and bringing into the twenty first century?
3: Well, I think. You know, the direct-to-consumer nature of um, supplier and and demand has resulted in smaller ecosystems being able to monetize. So I think all of these upstart brands can, can have the potential to be successful to a certain extent. But we're, we're not going to get to a place where there's an NBA, a NFL, MLB, NHL, UFC, NIL, PFL, that are all you know, seven, eight, ten, twelve $12 billion businesses. I just don't think that that's, that's realistic, but I do think if you get in from the ground up and have a perspective of, Hey, we're going to, we're going to invest 50, hundred, $150 million and turn this into a 600, $700 million entity that potential certainly exists. If you have a galvanized passionate fan base, which is really what the UFC was, right? The core UFC fan base for many years was, 2 to 300,000 people in the US. And over time we're able to build it and make it more mainstream and then as the sport evolved and became partners with Fox and now ESPN, it's it's become more synonymous with popular culture. But there you know I, I think there's there's lots of opportunities for investments if you have the right mindset of what the potential of the upside is.
1: Nikisa, you mentioned they are direct-to-consumer, and obviously that is one of the, the big, big trends of the last five years. One of the main competitors that has done that is obviously WWE, almost as, 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 as much as UFC. But what do you think now, and 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 I put this in the context of you've been involved with Triller and you knowing all these platforms, what do you think now about their decision to go almost... Uh, in reverse, and and just sell their their rights to Peacock. How how do you rationalize that out?
3: I think the the value that they were able to get from another direct to consumer quote unquote platform was higher than what they could drive themselves going direct to consumer. So I think it was an easy decision uh, for them to do so. No different than you know if you think about the UFC and and the partnership they did with with ESPN, right? The model was, was highly variable with the pay-per-view historically. Now from what I see outside in is they have a guaranteed base for all of their pay-per-view events in addition to their traditional kind of linear and digital rights that, for other events that they, that they contracted there. So I think, I think there's there, the demand from all these media companies that they, as they start to uh, and need to have direct relationships with their consumers is what content is sticky. I'll give you you know, a, a stat that I, that I heard around Mayweather and Logan Paul. It was the best signups Showtime had had for their subscription channel in the history of the network, right? So that doesn't necessarily mean those people were just buying the pay-per-view where those people who were going to stay long-time Showtime subscribers. But from a customer acquisition perspective, it was their best night in history. And I think to a certain extent, all these media companies see this form of premium content like the WWE as, as a way to, to drive that customer engagement and acquisition. So I think it it makes sense for Peacock, and it makes a hell of a lot of sense for WWE to not have to bear that entire structure uh, and have guaranteed revenues that have a, 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 escalators in them.
1: Yeah. Listen, one of the, one of the last questions before we, we wrap up. Um I've heard you talking a lot about investment in sport and and you know, in the in the US it's slightly different so uh, we're speaking to you as somebody that's that's global and is operating all across the board. You know, in Europe, um sport seems to have this like unnatural relationship with new investors that you know they don't like the way they think they don't they are scared about how they're going to change the sport they think they're going to if it's a private equity company they're going to be here for 3 years and and get out um i've heard you talk in the past about this only working the relationship between sport and finance if it's long term tell me what you mean by that and and what that looks like in your eyes in the next 10 years
3: sure i think what what i'm speaking to in that regard is sports cannot be viewed and that when I say sports, it's the sports that's played on the field, right? Um, or the rink or whatever it may be, not, not sports investments around um, the on-field performance. But if if you want to invest in in a brand that has an existing fan base, history, culture, and you want to create value, you have to do it by gaining the confidence of that community, of that fan base, of those players of that organization and i don't think that can be done in a short amount of time because you won't you won't get the right support you won't get the right commitment and you'll have the wrong outcome and the next person coming in will view that as a distressed environment versus an attractive environment and it goes back to what i said around the ufc i think every buyer that came in and looked at the ufc saw an extremely attractive asset from top to bottom including the fan base including the fighters, including the management team. And that's no different if you're investing in a, in a team or sport in Europe. Everyone has to be bought into your vision. You have to make them partners in the process and be honest with them. Be forthright about what your plans are as well. Because nobody likes surprises about something they love.
2: Nikki's saying saying this, and, and that's positive to hear. Does that mean that you're bullish and... It- excited about what what is ahead for the global sports industry and for individual sports with this shift change in technology consumption and all the things that you've talked about are you therefore quite excited about something that you're clearly passionate about with with your basketball that with the right investors long-term investors and with people the sports industry understanding that that, that reinvestment needs to happen that it's an exciting future for sports lovers
3: I think it's for sports lovers. I think it's yeah, I mean the the evolution of the technology and data and capabilities around sports are going to allow you to engage with your with your players and your teams in a way that you've never done before. And I think from an investor perspective, you're seeing it in the US because the valuations are getting so high that you're going to have to change the rules around ownership to continue to not just not just grow, but even sustain some of these levels of valuation, given the amount of wealth it takes to own some of these assets, right? But I'm sure all of us on this call have investments around the sports space. And I think there there's going to be plenty of them um, to to do and, and be profitable. But in terms of actually owning within the the you know the team structure or the league structure. I think it's it's getting more and more difficult for the more established brands but younger brands of course there's opportunities we spoke about.
0: Nikita, it's been, it's been a fascinating hour um uh, it, it's been such an interesting insight into the mindset of what what is you know one of the fastest growing segments of the sports world and, and really is is kind of changing the sports landscape and leading Broader sport into the next century. As I say, I, I'm on record as not necessarily being a huge fan of that because I'm a, a fusty old traditionalist. But Roger is absolutely on the cutting edge, and he's called all this extremely well. So I, I can't thank you enough for taking this time and giving us some insights into the into the thought process behind it because it really is revolutionising the sporting landscape.
3: Thank thank you, Grant, Roger Giles, and, and James in the background. It's uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. I hope. You all tune in on August 29th when uh, we have Jake Paul boxing against Tyron Woodley. 100%.
1: You know, I, you... I, will, I will do
0: it for the first time when you're on it, Nikisa.
3: Thank you. Hopefully, hopefully your, your first time doesn't jinx
1: our outcomes. But yes, that'd be right, great. Right. <laughs> great stuff. Thank you so much. Such Nick. a Thank you all. Thanks, Nikisa. Take care. Thank you all. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: Well, see, Rose, you've finally done it. I'm now going to have to tune into one of these fights now just because nikita's such a good guy that was that was fascinating really really enjoyed it do you like that
1: i th- i think it's good to hear you know somebody of that um balance talk about what he's doing at the the outer uh, the outer limits of of the disruption and realize that these aren't um carpetbaggers they're not goths and vandals coming from the north to sack um the colosseum um, these are people that understand audience and they understand younger generations. So I hope people got something out of that. That was my aim. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure they did. I'm, I'm sure they did.
2: And my hope is that you know, what he's talking about, and it's, again, Roger, it, it, it falls so much what you've been saying for, for, for a couple of years now, is for for the many rights holders who do listen in, I know on on this podcast, is not to fear money, not to fear investment, not to fear the future, Take a leap towards it and embrace it because it is coming. And and rather than being just into protection for the sake of protection, that doesn't mean that one can't be a custodian of your sport, but it does mean that you have to open your eyes to how that sport can be more appealing and and go to a wider audience, as they did from a standing jump, which is ironic because I think the standing jump used to be at the Olympics until it was... uh cancelled some years ago
0: exactly it, so fa- finally the olympics were ahead of the head of the times <laughs> well exactly. gentlemen we've reached the end of another show uh another thought-provoking conversation um all that remains is to thank our guest nikisa Baderian and uh, for, for giving up his time and to thank you of course as always for listening to us please and uh, I, I know i say this every time but it really does help do take a moment if you can to rate and review us in the itunes store Follow us on Twitter. If you're not already, you'll find us at Entertained R. That's the word, A-R-E. You can find me, should you wish to do so, and follow me uh, in the same place at T-T-M-Y-G-H.
2: And you can find me, Giles
0: Morgan, at
1: GilesMorgan71. And as always, you can follow up uh, with me at RPM Como, as in the lake. As in the lake. Gentlemen, until next time.